This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 30th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In the latest edition of Cato Unbound, how and when, if ever, should courts simply defer to the wishes of the government? Evan Burnick of the Institute for Justice makes his case for judicial engagement over what he calls judicial abdication. You use this term judicial engagement, which uh, I've, in my conversations with Clark Neely, obviously that is trademark Clark Neely, as far as I can tell. It was actually coined initially by Chip Miller, but it was uh, a former president of IJ, but it was Clark who defined and and defended it in terms of engagement and really popularized the concept. You argue uh, that, of course, we do need judicial engagement. And uh, to give us a sense of what that actually means, what have we had up until now? So what we have now is isolated pockets of engagements or um, islands of engagement in a sea of judicial abdication. In most constitutional settings, um, judges do not engage. Um, They do not seek to determine what the government is actually trying to accomplish. Um, They are not impartial. They defer broadly to the government's factual assertions and beliefs and desires concerning the law. And they do not uh, require the government to offer evidence in support of its assertions. Um, there are a few narrow pockets in which judges do engage, and these are contexts in which they apply what is called heightened scrutiny. So there's a two-tier framework whereby in most constitutional cases you get abdication, and in a few cases you get fairly consistent engagement. Which, when you say engagement, what you're talking about is a judge grappling with the text an original meaning of the Constitution? Well, it's a little bit different. Uh, Judicial engagement does not take a position on the meaning of the Constitution, how you get at the meaning of the text. That is the forum in which originalism is um, the methodology. Judicial engagement is about how you approach constitutional cases. Um, Who bears the burden of proof? Who has to offer the evidence? Who bears the risk of uncertainty if the evidence concerning constitutionality is an equipoise. And judicial engagement stands for the proposition that the government needs to offer um, evidence and a constitutionally proper reason for its actions and to demonstrate that the means that it's chosen um, to further its ends are not pretextual, that they are genuine. Where have we seen cases where, at a high level, Mm -hmm. judges have said to the government, you know, I'm sure you had your reasons. We're not going to look too deeply at what those are mm-hmm. or whether there was a less invasive means to do the thing you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. Yeah. So the leading case, uh, which is kind of distills the essence of what I'm talking about, is a 1955 case called Williamson v. Lee Optical. Uh, Williamson v. Lee Optical involved a, an eyeglass retailer who operated very similarly to how LensCrafters uh, operates today. You know, they advertised eyeglasses, they um, replaced eyeglass lenses, and they sold eyeglasses to customers. And in the, the um, uh, the state in that in that case um, required, first of all, it forbade um, the selling of eyeglass lenses or the advertising of, of eyeglass lenses. Second of all, it actually required that in order to replace an eyeglass lens, uh, you needed to get a prescription um, from an ophthalmologist. Um, just for what was essentially a task that was performed by the clerk um, at an optician's place. And the courts looked at the evidence that this was not 
you know, designed to calc—this uh, was not calculated to do anything resembling public health and safety, and essentially said, well, we don't care because the legislator, legislature might have thought that this was constitutional. Um, we're not going to get into the business of—the day is gone. Um, uh, that we will carefully evaluate economic regulations and restrictions on business operations. And that really initiated what I would call um, the rationalize a basis test. And Clark originally coined this term. But prior to that, when judges um, evaluated the rationality of legislation, um, they would at least require the government to offer a reason and they would allow the um, constitutional challengers to present facts and evidence that the government's reasons were pretextual, that they were not designed to protect public health or safety, but simply to establish a monopoly. But in uh, this case? In Lee Optical, they basically said, if a non-insane person could have thought that this was a means of protecting public health or safety, it's constitutional. As Lucas Powell put it in his biography of the Warren Court, the Constitution simply does not apply here. Um, and since uh, that case, really, um, the dominant model of the rational basis test has seen judges ignoring evidence, um, failing to pursue the government's true ends, and even conceiving of justifications for the government's actions um, for which there is no evidence in the record. How has this been challenged uh, before now? It's interesting. There are actually a few, if you've, you know, look to a number of decisions that the Supreme Court has decided over the years. There are a number of cases in which the court, while um, nominally applying the rational basis test, has nonetheless done what I would consider consistent with engagements. Um, they, have not required, they have not simply accepted the government's justifications for its actions. They've looked at the record. They've done means-ends analysis, and they've not rationalized, even though they could. So in Rumber v. Evans, this is a case involving a, con a, um, a constitutional uh, amendment, an amendment to the Colorado Constitution that specifically um, uh, exempted or specifically required that municipalities in the state of Colorado not offer uh, certain protections for anti-discrimination against same-sex couples. And the Supreme Court looked at that and said, yes, we're in rational basis territory, but looking at the record and the evidence presented, we don't think that this could possibly serve any purpose other than the bare expression of dislike, and that is not a legitimate constitutional end. So what we've done, I mean, in the course of our litigation at IJ, is we have drawn upon cases in which the court does something that is, you know, actual rationality review, despite nominally applying rational basis cases, and said, look, based on the principles of these cases, we know that the government, ha that some ends are illegitimate. We know that you look at the record. We know that you won't accept everything. Here's why this is like those cases. This is the kind of case um, where you have what amounts to a naked preference in favor of a particular group. Um, in that case, or, uh, you know, you had um, bare animus towards a particular group. We deal with naked favoritism, but it's the naked part that's key. There's nothing but the will of the politically powerful that's driving that law. Nothing concerned with public health or safety, nothing concerned with the genuine public good, but just um, the—it's uh, it, basically um, uh, a factional takeover. If someone were to be handed a copy of the Constitution yeah. and said, uh, you know, apply this to this dispute between a government and some person, mm -hmm. you would think that it all applies equally, mm -hmm. that it's meant to operate as sort of a singular document of how 
the government is allowed to work, the powers that government is allowed to have, mm -hmm. but that's not how constitutional rights and uh, government powers are applied when they're in court. No, that's right. Um, what we have now, and what we had since a 1938 case um, called United States v. Caroline Products, is tiered scrutiny, whereby certain constitutional rights are treated as essentially more equal than others, that receive meaningful, rigorous, um, uh, fact-sensitive judicial review, whereas other rights essentially receive a rubber stamp when the government seeks to assert its power over them. Um, there's nothing about that in the Constitution. The Constitution vests the judicial power in the courts. It incorporates a duty of independent judgment in accordance with the law of the land um, that is consistent and uniform, and that doesn't vary based on what uh, constitutional limits uh, the government is say, said to have transgressed or what constitutional rights the Constitution, uh, the government has burdens. Um, but the Supreme Court has created a hierarchy on the basis of its, what can only be said is its, its normative commitments to the idea that um, certain personal rights are more important than so-called economic rights or rights that affect people's interactions in the market. Uh, you make reference here to James Bradley Thayer, and I have to admit that the first time I think I ever heard about him was talking to Randy Barnett and uh, about his book, Our Republican Constitution. Mm -hmm. And uh, you make note that Thayer, uh, Thayer's ideas about judicial deference mm -hmm. took root in what is known as the Lochner decision in 1905 mm -hmm. with uh, Justice Holmes. What did Holmes say in that opinion? Justice Holmes said that unless a rational and fair man would necessarily agree that a particular act of legislation violates fundamental constitutional principles, then that legislation is constitutional. So if you could find a non-insane person somewhere who would say, no, this doesn't violate the Constitution, that was enough to uphold that legislation. And that way of thinking about um, the Constitution and its limits on governments, I think, can ultimately be true to Holmes's um, one-time teacher, um, James Bradley Thayer, who's a Harvard professor who argued um, for what's known as the clear error rule. Um, it's the idea that he applied it only to Congress, but unless um, the uh, unless the piece of legislation was clearly not only unconstitutional, but no rational person anywhere could think that it was constitutional judges should uphold it. And this position of Thayer's actually stemmed from his own perception that the law was pervasively indeterminate, you know, shot through with ambiguity. And in the space of ambiguity, he said, essentially, you know, defer to the crowd, defer to the majority. And that was very conducive to Holmes's way of thinking. Holmes was a thoroughgoing majoritarian and value skeptics. Uh, value skeptic, and he operationalized Thayer's approach, which Thayer applied only to Congress, to constitutional law generally. Now, you say that this Thayerian deference, as it's come to be known, has not been fully embraced by courts, mm -hmm. but it has been almost fully embraced when it comes to economic matters. Yeah. So, in a very limited context, our jurisprudence is Thayerian. Um, 
Thayer himself, again, cabined his approach to acts of Congress, um, never advocated it um, as a general principle, but we have applied it in the context of economic liberty cases. In this Cato Unbound essay that you've written, your respondents are David Strauss, Barry P. McDonald, and Ed, Edward Whalen. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you expect them to say in response to what you've said here? I'm actually interested in what David Strauss will have to say. He was um, a professor at the time that I was at the University of Chicago, um, and I've always had a great deal of admiration for his work. I'm not precisely sure what he'd say to this issue. Uh, he'd say about this issue, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he has to say. Um, professor Barry McDonald actually wrote an um, an article uh, very recently about the Supreme Court and about the fact that we now have a justice on the courts and opine that this might actually be a good thing, that we have a court that's likely to split about the big issues, because the judiciary was largely an afterthought for the framers and never intended for it to play a major role in American public life. I wrote a response to that on the, uh, the Federalist Society blog, arguing that the framers actually believed that the judiciary was an essential institution. Um, they didn't believe that it should be an arbiter of national policy more generally, but they did believe that it should, um, in proper and even politically contested cases, do its duty and decide those cases in accordance with the law of the land, regardless of what popular majorities or politicians thought. Um, so I will be interested to see what he has to say. Um, Ed Whalen, I've had a number of exchanges with him. Ed is a very thoughtful person. Uh, I expect that he will take issue with my characterization of how the conservative movements, um, uh, uh, conservative legal movement really got going, and my suggestion that in practice the approach that conservatives advocated, um, advocated uh, was ever similar to Thayerian deference. Um, I look forward to exchange about that because uh, I think that while um, you'd be hard-pressed to find many explicit Thayerians. I mean, Lino Graglia, I think, is a good candidate, as is J. Harvey Wilkinson. Um, uh, the substantive approach that conservative advocates of judicial restraint took and uh, take now and have taken for some time is functionally indistinguishable from Thayerian deference, at least in a lot of contexts, and that there is a implicit premise, well, sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit premise of majoritarianism that unites um, both Thayer and the progressives who followed Thayer and um, the conservative legal movement in its early stages. Evan Burnick is assistant director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice. You can read his essay and responses at Keto Unbound. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Keto Podcast.